please. Let's all stand up and let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for everything that you have done for us through the blood of your son, Jesus. Lord, you said that where two or three of us are gathered together in your name, you're there in the midst of them. So, Lord, we acknowledge your presence in this place. We ask you to speak to us, speak to our hearts, encourage us, Lord, increase our faith. And I ask you to touch those who are sick, who have needs in their lives tonight. And in all things, Lord, we covenant to give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise because you alone are worthy. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Please be seated. And uh, uh, before I go any further, I want to mention a little bit about... uh, Steve and Evelina, would you stand up? Stand up. Now, there's Pastor Steve Shippey. Uh, the pastor in Assembly of God in Coventry, Coventry and Evelina, his wife. Now, uh, you see, Evelina was my Bible school student when she was 18 or something in Sweden. Uh, She's actually Bulgarian. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when she was eight years old, I think the family escaped from Bulgaria, which was under communism, and you guys ended up in Austria? Huh? You were nine, and then they came to Sweden, and she grew up in Sweden. Then they were, she was in the Bible school, and then she worked with our ministry for six years. So she's like a member of our family. And then she met uh, Pastor Steve. They were, not a pa- they were not pastoring then, but then they got married. I, I was at their wedding. It was wonderful in London, England. And then, uh, uh, then they moved to Rhode Island, where he's from. And now, then they founded this church, right? You started this church, and they've been pastoring there. So good to see you again. Praise God. Amen. Amen. So I was actually preaching for them two Sundays ago. So uh, two Sundays ago, I mean Sunday before Easter, and I was home for Easter, and now I flew back and forth to uh, Providence two times. So it's good to see you guys. Amen. And they've got their children with them. And then, uh, can you guys stand up? Come on. Yeah, these are their kids and their twins. And uh, then they've got some other friends with them from their church. So it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Praise God. Now I want to start by showing you a PowerPoint. Do you have the other PowerPoint ready? Do we have it? Okay, let's let's put it on. This is, uh, this. uh, you know, the first one I showed you was uh, from our ministry in Asia, and this shows you a little bit of everything all over the world. So let's go to the next picture. Uh, This is Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Britta and me, when we were in Africa together, uh, the last time, this was a few years ago. Uh, I'll tell you when to switch the picture. This is a real, okay, next picture, please. This is a real line. This is not Photoshop. This is not like uh, photoshopped or is, this is not a stuffed lion. This is a real lion. So I actually uh, took a little, a short course in which they taught me how to handle a lion with nothing but a stick in my hand. And uh, then, then, you know, then I interacted with the lion. But one thing they do is they actually feed the lion pretty good because lions only kill when they're hungry. You know, so, but just in case, just in case the lion decides to backslide they always have a guy with a loaded rifle, you know. So uh, still, you know, it's, it's a wild animal. You have to be careful. And so anyway, so this was my 
my life's great adventure. And I did it. I thought if this preaching gig doesn't work out, I can get a job at a circus. So, okay. The, the next picture is, uh, this is me preaching in uh, Chawama in Zambia. Now, on this, this is significant because on this field at one time, we actually had 30,000 people baptized with the Holy Ghost on this field at one time. Okay, the next picture is this is uh, in Manga in Mozambique. This is a very isolated place in the middle of nowhere, but, but there was a town close by, but people came from town to this place and they filled the field. And the next picture is, uh, this is in Lobengula in Zimbabwe. And the next one is the first, at the top is Chawama in Zambia. And the lower one is George in Zambia. I'm actually going back to George again in, um, in two weeks' time. I'll be preaching in George. And the next one is, this is in um, Mafambisi in Mozambique. This is in a region which is 40% Muslim. This, you know, the central part of Mozambique is 40% Muslim. The northern part of Mozambique is almost 100% Muslim. And I've been there. I mean, you, you go to places where everybody is Muslim and there's no churches. So we have been to such places and held crusades and planted churches. But this area is 40% Muslim. And what is actually happening, one thing that people don't know, that the wealthy oil-producing Muslim countries, uh, they, give about, uh, they give a certain percentage of their income to the spread of Islam. I think it's 2.5% or something. Because just like Christians pay their tithes, Muslims are, are required to give 2.5% of their income uh, to the work of Islam. And so these countries do that. I think it's 2.5% they give, which is billions of dollars. And they give this to the spread of Islam, and they send missionaries out, and they build these uh, Islamic centers uh, every 20, 30 kilometers in Africa. In certain regions of Africa, they target. So you'll see an Islamic center with a mosque, with a clinic, and a school, and they tell the poor Africans of that area that if you convert to Islam, we will give free education to your children, including meals at school, and you'll get free clothes to wear at school, you'll get free medical treatment and all that. So a lot of people convert. So as a result of that, these areas are 40% Muslim, and we have been working in that area and preaching, but we haven't been able to do anything because of COVID, but we'll be back again in that area. Okay, the next one is, uh, this is people getting baptized with the Holy Spirit in George, in Zambia. And the next picture is, this is in Kadoma, in Zimbabwe. This is pretty close to where our ministry has a farm, but of course we are not growing anything there because, uh, you know, there's no fertilizer, there's no electricity to run the pumps, and it's a very bad situation in Zimbabwe. So, we have not been able to farm anything except, uh, but we have a Bible school there, and we have an orphanage on that farm. And the next picture is, uh, this is, uh, I think this is one of the pictures I showed this morning. This is uh, altar call from one of our crusades in Asia. And the next one, again, one of our campaigns in Asia. And the next one, uh, this is in uh, Abu Dhabi. As you can see, these are very conservative Muslims. They came to our meeting. It was actually quite funny because when they came to the place where we were holding our meeting, uh, we had ushers at the door. They said, oh, you're looking for the mosque? The mosque is next door. They said, no, 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 we're not going to the mosque. We want to come to hear about Jesus. 
So we said, well, you're welcome. So they came in, and when I gave the altar call, they all wanted to be saved, and, and people were healed, so it was, it was fantastic. And uh, the next one is, um, no, these are, these, you know, the man with his back to the camera and the other man who's speaking into the microphone, they were siblings, they were brothers, and they were Muslims. So we did a crusade in this uh, Muslim area, uh, in, in a Muslim kind of neighborhood, and they saw the posters and they couldn't understand how somebody could, could be called Christopher Alam because Alam is, a, is an Arabic name, a Muslim name, and Christopher is a Christian name. So they came out of curiosity and they carried this, um, these two paralyzed men with them because we had on the posters that Jesus you know, will heal the sick and they both got healed. And after that, I mean, we had a flood of Muslims. Every night they came to the meeting and people were saved and healed. And the next picture is, uh, this is a woman completely blind who's, who received her sight. This is in Malawi. And the next picture, uh, this is, I showed this picture this morning. This is a little child born paralyzed walking in, uh, uh, in Asia. And the next one is, now this is interesting. This boy was born with a club foot. And when he was six months old, his father... Uh, came to the crusade carrying him and showed me his foot. It was totally deformed and grotesque. It looked like a club, actually. And he says, this is my son, six months old. Can you pray for him? So I prayed for the foot, and God healed him uh, because the next crusade we did was the next week in another town about 20, 30 miles away, and he came there and showed me that the Lord had healed this boy. Well, six years later, I was back in that town again, and now he comes with this boy, he's six years old, and shows me that he's completely healed. So I asked the father, I said, what are you doing these days? He said, after the Lord healed my son, I gave my life to Jesus, and now I'm pastoring a Pentecostal church. So he's now one of the pastors in town. And the next picture is, uh, this is me preaching uh, 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 to the general presbyters of the Assemblies of God in Tanzania, of the Tanzania Assemblies of God. We have 3,000 pastors there. This is also another thing I do, you know, events for pastors. And the next one is uh, also the same event, 3,000 general presbyters. These are the top leaders of the Assemblies of God. And the next one is, this is... This is in Zomba, Malawi, uh, and we, uh, Evelina, where, did we go to Zomba? We were in Zomba, right? So we held a crusade there in Zomba, and uh, this was a Muslim town, Muslim majority, and we planted a church there after the crusade. And then uh, years later, I was back in Zomba, and the church we had planted had grown to a congregation of 4,000 people, plus they had planted... 26 churches all around town because in Africa, people don't have cars. So you need to have churches in the different neighborhoods where people live so it's not too far for them to walk. So we had, they had planted 26 churches and Zomba is no longer a Muslim-majority town. The majority of the people there are Pentecostal. So it's no longer a Muslim-majority town. And so then the next one is, uh, this is our, uh, we built this house for our orphans. Uh, you know, we, we actually inherited a group of orphans in Africa. Someone, there were these orphans and nobody was taking care of them. So they basically dumped these orphans on me. So 
you know, you have to take care of them. So we started a little orphanage and took care of them. And now, just a couple of months ago, the last one of our orphans turned 18, and he's moved out. So now the orphanage is empty, and we are trying to figure out how to restart it with a new group of children. So we are we're still trying to figure that out. And the next one is, this is dormitory for our church planting Bible school. We have a church planting school, and we, we train them for a year. Then once they graduate, we send them out two by two, and we put them under a pastor, and he sends them out somewhere to plant a church. And it's a concept that has worked very well. And right now we're in the process of starting another one in Asia in a needy area. So church planting is very important. And I think, and let's see, I think there's one more picture. Uh, this is me again preaching in Zambia. So anyway, so these were the pictures. This gives you an idea of what we do worldwide. And praise the Lord. Let's go to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. And uh, I will start from verse number 12. Mark 11, verse 12. Now, in Mark 11, verse number 12, we read about Jesus going from Bethany to Jerusalem. So, let's start Mark 11, verse number 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And, we, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee, hereafter forever, and his disciples heard it. So Jesus was going, it was early in the morning, he was going from Bethany to Jerusalem, and then it says that he was hungry, and he sees a fig tree having leaves. This is very significant because the fig tree had nothing but leaves, and he says he came to see, he began to check the tree if there was anything on it. But... He found nothing but leaves. But it tells us why he found nothing but leaves. It can be a bit confusing here because it was not the season for figs. Now, Jesus being a local, he was a son of the soil. Of course, he would know that this was not the season for figs. Because when you grow up in a certain area and you have seasonal fruit, you know what fruit grows at what time of the year. So, But what was he really looking for? in the tree. Fig trees have a very unusual feature that long before, months before the actual season for figs, the owner of a fig tree, because a fig, you know, farming for figs was a, a commercial thing. People used to sell figs, uh, fresh figs in the market. So the owner of the fig tree would go to the tree and he would check the branches uh, of the fig tree. Because fig trees have this unique feature that long before the season for figs, every branch would have a number of pods on it. And the pods actually indicate where a fig would subsequently appear 
when it was the season for figs. So that's what farmers would do. So they would look through the branches, and if the branches had no pods, then the owner of the tree would know that this is a useless tree. It will not give any fruit. And the Bible says that every tree that doesn't bear fruit, the owner of the tree would cut the fruit and throw it into the fire. You know, there's a scripture about that. Jesus said it. So he, Jesus, this has really nothing to do with figs, but Jesus wanted a tree that he could use to teach his disciples about faith. But he wanted to use a useless tree for the purpose because God never curses anything which is fruitful. God never curses anything which is fruitful. So once Jesus had determined that this was a useless tree, there were no pods in it, there was nothing but leaves, then he decides this is the tree I'm going to use to teach about faith. So he steps back and then he does something unusual. He speaks to the tree. Now, if you look at the ministry of Jesus until this point, you never see him talking to a tree. You see him talking to people, but you never see him talking to a tree. So he actually spoke to the tree. And then it says, and his disciples heard it. He made sure that he spoke loudly enough so that all his disciples heard him speak to the tree. And he spoke very precisely what he wanted should happen. He said, no man is going to eat fruit of you henceforth and forever. And so he spoke very clearly what he wanted. Then he walked away from that. Now, he wanted the disciples to hear precisely what he said because he was trying to teach them a lesson about faith. But here's another point is that, you know, very often... When you move in faith, uh, you have to throw your dignity out the window. Because God will tell you to do things that can appear foolish, like talking to a tree. I wouldn't want anyone to see me talking to a tree. And if God would tell me to speak to a tree, I would go there in the middle of the night when everybody was asleep and I make sure nobody's looking, then I just whisper something to the tree and walk on. Because I don't want people to say, you know that Christopher Alam, I saw him in the park talking to a tree. You see what I'm trying to say? But Jesus was trying to teach them a lesson on faith. He spoke loudly. And when you move in faith, you have to do it boldly. You have to do it loudly. You have to be bold in faith. You can never be ashamed of the things that God tells you to do in faith. So Jesus spoke to the tree And he was very precise. He said, nobody's going to eat fruit from you forever. Then he just turns and walks on to Jerusalem. Then he goes to Jerusalem. And you know the story where it says he went into the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers. You know, that's what took place next. And then it says, verse 19, and when evening was come, he went out of the city. So this happened in the morning. And the daytime he was in the temple doing his thing. And in the evening he moved out of the city. And he says, and in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. So the next morning, which is 24 hours after Jesus had spoken to the tree, 24 hours later, they saw 
that the tree had shriveled up, it has dried up. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. Peter got very excited. He said, Lord, look at this tree, the tree you cursed yesterday morning has now dried up. Now, there's several lessons here. Firstly, it took 24 hours from the time Jesus cursed the fig tree to the time that it was actually dried up. It took 24 hours. It didn't dry up like Jesus spoke to it and you know, right in the next second, the thing just, you know, like in those Indiana Jones movies, you know, just, it didn't happen like in a Hollywood special effect. It took 24 hours because when Jesus cursed the fig tree, after he had cursed it, it looked exactly like I, like it did before he had cursed it. But Jesus didn't stop and say, oh, I got to do it one more time because it still looks the same. Let me give it a louder, you know, sh- shout at it louder and give it a shake, you know, maybe have an usher behind it to catch it if it falls. You know, he didn't do that. He just spoke and he walked away because Jesus was not moved by what he saw, but he was moved by the word that came out of his mouth. When Jesus opened his mouth and spoke, he knew that this was the same mouth that spoke the universe into existence. And that there was power in the words that came out of his mouth. So as far as he was concerned, when he spoke to the tree, it was a done deal. That tree was as good as dead and he walked away from there without, you know, giving it a second thought that, well, the tree still looks the same. Because this is how the kingdom of God works. It's the, it's the word of God going forth that makes things happen. So Jesus walked away. Now, that's the first point. The second point is that it took 24 hours for the tree to dry up. Which tells us that sometimes miracles take time. Miracles take time. Why? The answer is very profound. It has three words. I don't know. Another answer is neither do you. Also three words. Nobody knows why. Nobody knows why. Because I remember I was in a place called Gorzov in Poland. And there was uh, that night we had six or seven people who were paralyzed. Get out of wheelchairs and and walk. And there was this... uh, this young man, I think he was 17 or 18 years old, he looks exactly the same. And his parents came to me and said, you know, God healed all those other people and my son still looks the same. Uh, so what do I do? I said, well, uh, was Jesus in the meeting? That's the important thing. The important thing isn't what happened, but was Jesus in the meeting? Oh yeah, he was there. I said, well, do you think Jesus loves your son less than all these other people? They said, no. I said, well, the the important thing is that we know that God's word is true. And secondly, that God always hears when we prayed in the name of Jesus. We have prayed and God has heard and God is working in your son. So they said, what should I do? I said, you should just do one thing. Every single day, I want you to open your mouth and say, thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for our son. You bore his diseases, bore his infirmities, and by your stripes he has been healed. The man of God has prayed for him, and we believe 
that you have healed my son. I said, do this every single day. And you know, these were Roman Catholic people. They won't argue with you. You know, our word of faith and Pentecostal people know everything. And if you say something that falls outside their box, they'll argue with you. They'll talk back. They'll tell you that they don't agree with you. But these things about these Catholics, if you're a man of God, if God is using you, they'll believe whatever you say. So they went away. A year later, I was back in the city of Poznan in Poland, which was, which was I think, about uh, 50, 60 miles from there. And they came to Poznan and they said, Pastor, exactly what you said happened. It took us a year for our son. It was a slow process, a very slow process. And now our son is completely healed because we did exactly what you told us to do. We gave thanks and we, we gave glory to the Lord every single day. And now our son is healed. Now, you know, why is it this way? I really don't know. Is it because God loves one person less and the other person more? No. There's some things we don't have the answer to and to Ask those questions is a stupid thing to do because both you and I know there are no answers. But what we do know that God is always good. We do know that Jesus bore everybody's diseases. We know that. We know that God is no respecter of persons. We know that God always hears us when we pray in the name of Jesus. We know those things. But then there's some things we don't know. But the worst thing, the worst case scenario is this. And people do this. So somebody comes for prayer. And Pentecostals have wonderful faith for about 15 minutes. And if nothing happens in those 15 minutes, then they begin to question, well, why didn't this happen? And then someone says, well, maybe a sin in his life. Somebody said, maybe it wasn't God's will. Somebody else will say, well, it wasn't God's timing. Or, you know, you have 10 people and 10 people have 10 different reasons. Why? I had a friend, good man, man of God, he passed away. He was sick, he passed away. And so a lot of people asked me, well, you know these things, why did he pass away? And I told them, should I tell you honestly? I said, I don't know. There's some things that are maybe between him and God. And anything, you see... I can tell you why something happened or why something didn't happen if there is scripture for it. But if there's no scripture for it, then the second thing I can lean on, if God gives me a vision or a revelation and he speaks to me. But I have to be very honest because a lot of people, especially in America, in fact, not only in America, all over the world, they will say, well, God told me this and God showed me that and God did nothing. God had nothing to do with it. But they make stuff up because they think that if they say God said this, God said that it gives what they say some kind of authority to it because God is behind it. But if we are to be honest, if there's no scripture for it, and, and you know, I've been in situations when I've asked God, God, why didn't so-and-so get healed? And 99% of the time, God has said, it's none of your business. It's none of your business. Now, there are times why God has shown me when people are not healed. But in each occasion, it has been when that person is still alive. And God has shown me a situation in that person's life. And that is to enable me to go in and help that person. 
tell that person, you know, I get think something through the word of knowledge. And brother, do you have this situation in your life? You need to rectify this. And then they have been healed. So God will show us things about other people's life, but that is when they are still alive so we can help them. God will not show me things about somebody who has passed away so I can gossip and or tell everybody why that person died because that's not my place. My place is to preach the gospel and minister to people. But here's the problem. Anytime somebody ascribes a reason to why somebody didn't get healed or somebody died, he's speculating. And your speculation is as good or as bad as mine. But the worst thing is this. I'm I'm aware that because God uses me, there are people who respect me. And so anything I say with my mouth carries weight with them. And the dangerous thing is that if I begin to spout out things, well, sometimes God doesn't want to heal people and sometimes this, that, and the other. My statement, my speculation becomes a part of somebody else's belief system. And that is dangerous because it undermines their faith because one day they need a miracle in their own body and they will say, you know, I need a miracle, but sometimes God doesn't want to heal people. Maybe I am one of those cases God doesn't want to heal because he has a higher purpose. That is why it is always good to stick to the word. And if you don't have a word, zip that lip, keep that mouth shut, and don't say anything. Amen? Amen? So what do we do if people die? Well, the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, comfort those who are wounded who are wounded and hurting. That's a part of the ministry. There are times we have to do that. We have to go. I've been to people's home and sat on the ground with them and helped them and wept with them. That is ministry. That's Pentecostal ministry to weep with people. To share the pain of other people. Sometimes you just have to do that and just say, look, I don't understand. I don't know. You know, when I came out of Bible school, I knew everything. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. If someone died, I was there the next day. And I feel ashamed of myself telling you this. I was there the next day and I could, I would tell them, I would lecture on, lecture them on why this person died and what they should have done. For that person to be healed. And believe me, I was such a fool. I didn't realize that that was not what they needed to hear at that time. But the older I grow, after 46 years in the ministry, I realize how little I really know. There's two things I've learned. I realize how little I really know. And the second thing, more important, I realize how much I need Jesus. Amen? So there are certain things that should be, you should approach on your knees and just keep your mouth shut and not write position papers and tell people, you know, sometimes God doesn't want to heal people. Don't say things that contradict the word because the Bible says Jesus bore all our diseases. He carried all our pains and by his stripes we are healed. You know, it's a difficult path to walk, but we can do it. Amen. We can see suffering around us and we can pray for people and we can live and walk in victory and we can see miracles praise God but there are those times we have to weep with people and praise God and that is when we rejoice for someone's life well lived for the glory of God and that they're in heaven with Jesus and we just praise God 
Leave it. And what do you do with the next person? Well, pray for them again. And don't let the things of the past affect your faith for the future. Amen? Did you learn anything from that? Now someone may say, is this faith teaching? Believe me, it is. So anyway, sometimes miracles take time. We don't know why. But here's Jesus said to Peter. He said, Peter, you are excited because you, you know, he said, Peter, have faith in God. In other words, what he was saying to Peter, Peter, have the God kind of faith. You have the mind, man kind of faith that's, that has to see something in order to shout and rejoice. That is why you had to see the fig tree shriveled up before you could shout and rejoice. But he said, have faith in God, which in the Greek it says, have the God kind of faith. Have the faith of God. Peter, don't live in man's faith, but live in the God kind of faith. And then he expresses how this God kind of faith is expressed. Because there's one thing about faith. Faith is no good unless it is expressed, unless it is set into motion. And the two main ways here, one is by speaking the word of God. And the second way we set our faith into motion is by prayer. So let's look at prayer first because I want to focus on speaking the word. Now prayer is the more common way we understand. You know, we, we have a situation and we say let's pray and we pray over that situation. But I've heard very few people actually talk about speaking the word as a way of releasing faith. It's always about prayer. And, but it's interesting. This is what Jesus said about prayer. He said in verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Interesting. He says, firstly... You specify, be very specific. Whatsoever things you desire, you have to be specific when you pray. You know, once a guy, well, it happened more than once, uh, Pastor, pray for me that I get a job. What kind of job? Well, any job. Okay, I'll pray that God gives you a shoe-shining job. He said, no, 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 I don't want a shoe-shining job. I, want to, I work with computers. That's my, I have a degree in computer science. I said, that's what I mean. Be specific with God what you want. So whatsoever things you desire, then it says here, when you pray, so you specify what you desire, and then you pray. When you have prayed, you believe that you have received it, and then you shall have it. In other words, receiving it, you believe that you have received it, and then you will have it. Normally, it's the other way around. We pray, and then we wait for something to happen. And if it happens, we say, praise God. If it doesn't happen, we say, well, that didn't work. I have to pray again. But Jesus is saying, no. When you pray, then the next moment after you prayed... You give thanks and you believe that you already have it. Say, thank you, Jesus. You've heard my prayer. I thank you. I have the answer to my prayer. Hallelujah. And he says, if you do that, then you shall have it. Now, what gives you the right to claim 
to possess something before you actually possess it. What gives you the right to claim, is it mind over matter? No. What gives you the right to claim that you have ownership of something that you don't really have as yet, is that if God has promised it in his word, if Jesus has shed his blood for you, for it, for you to have it, then you have every right to claim and to say that it belongs to you. Amen. You with me? If God has promised it in his word, you have every right to claim that it is yours. So one of the things that God has promised in his word is healing. It says, surely he has borne our diseases and he has carried our pains. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. So because of the word of God, declare, because the word of God declares it, you have every right to claim and to tell people that I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus, even before you see the healing in your body, you have every right to say it. Why? Because God has spoken and said that it belongs to you. You don't have to wait for it to be manifested for you to be able to acknowledge that you have it. You can say it is already yours, even if you don't physically possess it, because the word of God declares that it is yours. Are you with me? Right? So that is how prayer works. That is how faith works. That is faith. You know, sometimes people say to me, you know, I have a lot of faith, but I have not been healed. I'm sorry, you don't have a lot of faith. Because if you had a lot of faith, you'd be saying that, you know, I have a lot of faith and Jesus has healed me. You wouldn't be saying, why am I not getting the answer? I have a lot of faith. You know, there's something wrong with that. You can't claim to have a lot of faith and then the next moment say, well, I don't have it. Why? Because a person of faith doesn't talk that way. Faith always acknowledges what God has done. Faith claims to have it. And then it says, in other words, in today's language, it was me. It would mean if you got it, you will get it. If you got it, you will get it. If you have it, then you'll have it. If you have it inside here, then you'll have it. Okay? Now, let's go back to speaking the word. But I must say one thing. In verse 25, here's a caveat when it talks about faith. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Here's a key to faith. That if you have unforgiveness in your life, if you live with resentment in your life, faith wouldn't work. In fact, there are two things that can hinder the prayer of faith in our lives. One is this, living in unforgiveness. And Peter talks about men who don't treat their spouses right. So, you know, sometimes you have men, you know, they come show up in church on Sunday morning with a big black King James Bible. And they're going all hallelujah. But at home, they're they're very abusive to their families. Right? And and if they are that way, the Bible tells them, Peter says very clearly that their prayers will not be answered. And it doesn't matter how holy, how religious they act or they behave. Because God will not be mocked what a man sows, he shall reap. Because God sees that which people cannot see. Right? 
people who know him just from the outside they will say well he's such a godly man he's in church every sunday why isn't he getting healed well god sees other things that you don't see so that's why this is very important we walk in love walk in forgiveness and walk in honor so that our prayers are heard but anyway let's go back to this about speaking the word in verse 23 Jesus said this, For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he says shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he says. Now, in this verse, the word believe occurs only once, but the word says occurs thrice. The emphasis is not what you believe. The emphasis is on what you say. So sometimes people say, oh, I'm believing God. And I say, no, no, it's not what, you, what you're believing God for, but it's what you are saying. The emphasis is on what you say, because it doesn't say here that you will have what you believe, but it says you will have what you say. That's why it's so important that we take the word of God in our mouth and speak the word of God. As we take the word of God, and it doesn't say you shall have what God says. You shall have what you say. Amen. You shall have what you say. In other words, if you take God's word and put it in your mouth and vocalize that word, you will find out that the word of God in in your mouth is just as powerful as the word of God in God's mouth. Because it is the word of God. You shall have what you say. That is why it's very important for us to learn this, to speak the word of God in our everyday circumstances and to change our vocabulary. Speak faith and speak healing and instead of sickness and speak prosperity and blessings instead of poverty and lack and speak confidence instead of fear and, you know, just speak blessings. You know, speak, speak the word of God. Because those things affect your life. Because even life and death are in the power of the tongue. Because your tongue decides whether you will have life or death or sickness or disease or blessings and curses. So it's very, it's important not just that we believe the right things. But often what happens, you know, I found this out even in my life. And I will be the first one to acknowledge it. You really have to work hard with yourself on that because I believe certain things. I believe certain things. I mean, I am, I believe them with all my heart. But when I'm in a situation, uh, I, I speak of the top of my head. And I work at it. You know, my wife will laugh at me. She says, oh, you man of faith, because I know, you know, if I get sick a little bit, I have pains in my body. I feel like I'm going to die. Most men are like that. We have a low pain threshold and I'm just, uh, you know, look, I was in the army. I was not afraid of facing enemy bayonets, but a nurse holding a needle scares me to death. <laughs> and here's the man of faith and power. And, you know, I have to get my thing, you know, and I go, Ooh, you know, uh, and, and, and then you, you realize, well, what am I doing? But that's why I'm saying it's a lifelong quest. You don't say that, you know, once and okay, I've overcome that. It is something you have to work on in your life, your whole life. Speaking the word of God. Otherwise, you'll find yourself believing certain things in your heart, but you speak off the top of your head. Oh, I believe in healing. I believe Jesus bore my diseases, carried my pains. How are you feeling? Oh, I feel terrible. Yeah, please. 
We are speaking on the top of our heads rather than speaking from our spirit. So, you know, we have to change our vocabulary, change the way we talk, change the way we think. And it's a lifelong quest. And it's better to start today. Because my point isn't that you should say, oh, that was a good message. Man, Christopher Alam, he said some good things. That's not the point. That's not the point. The point is that you take this and you begin to apply this in your life and begin to practice Speaking the word of God today and how you talk about yourself and how you talk about your circumstances, how you talk about your spouse and how you talk about your children and how you talk about the things that are around you. Amen. He says, you shall have what you say. So there is power in your words. Amen. So now let us look at, I'll give you a biblical example of somebody who spoke the word and received a miracle. Mark chapter 5. And you know the story of the woman with the issue of blood. In verse 25, uh, in Mark chapter 5, we read about this woman. It said, And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered but rather grew worse. Now, normally when you have a person like this, this has been my observation. When you have someone who who has suffered for 12 years. Now, you must remember this woman had been bleeding for 12 years. I I remember in Zambia a few years ago, they carried a woman in on a stretcher or a bed, something like that. And she had been bleeding for one year. And she was like a skeleton, pale as death. She couldn't stand up. But anyway, God healed her that night. But I... Remember thinking, I mean, she was a black African lady, but her skin was like yellow. She had no blood in her body. She looked like a skeleton. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking of, the, of this lady. If she looks like this after bleeding for one year, I wonder what that woman in the Bible looked like after bleeding for 12 years. So she had suffered for 12 long years bleeding and she had been to many doctors and I'm sure anyone who, any rabbi who prayed for people, you know, they took her everywhere. She did everything she could to be healed and then he says she spent all her money, went to all the doctors, but instead of getting better, she grew worse. Normally, my observation has been that people like this are very disillusioned. Sometimes very bitter because they have done everything and their body has become weak. Now they can barely move and, and, and you tell that person, oh, we've got a healing service coming out, faith, Christian, you know, fellowship. And, and they will say, you know, I've done all that, been to the healing meeting circuit, circuit and they might come just to humor you, but really... They have no expectation. Many people like that are very jaded. They're disillusioned and sometimes even bitter. But this woman, she had a little spark of faith left. Because it says here, when she had heard of Jesus, when she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. And then it tells us why she did that. Verse 28 For she said. She said something. She 
articulated these words with her mouth. And then it tells us what she said. If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. Now, the interesting thing is the Greek word for said, legu. Now, you know, in English we say, I said. He said. So when I, when I say, I said, I have to specify how I said it. It could have been, I said softly, or I said it loudly, or I shouted it, or, or I said within myself. You know, there's, the word said can mean many things. But in the Greek, there are very, spe- very specific words. And the word legu actually means to loudly and repeatedly and continually affirm and declare something. So this woman, when she heard that Jesus was passing through town, and mind you, Jesus was actually going to the house of Jairus, which was in another village to pray for Jairus' daughter who was dying. And he actually just happened to be passing through this woman's village and passing by her house. And, and she heard the commotion and found and asked, who is it? What's going on outside? And they said, it's Jesus. And she seized that opportunity. She had the spark of faith and she, she opened her mouth and she said something. And she said, I'm going to touch his clothes and I'm going to be healed. I'm going, and she said this loudly and repeatedly. She kept on saying, she kept on saying, I'm going to touch his clothes and I shall be whole. I am going to touch his clothes and I'm going to be whole. I'm going to touch his clothes and I'm going to be made whole. And you know, the more she said that, her words caused her spirit to rise up. Repeated repetition of of speaking faith raised up her spirit and actually propelled her feet to move forward step by step because you mind you she was very weak but she had decided and she kept on speaking because see you can speak the word once and Mark 4 says that when the seed is sown in your ground Satan come come immediately and take it away from you so she did the right thing she spoke it again and again and again and again I'm going to touch his clothes and I shall be whole I'm going to touch his clothes and I shall be whole I'm going to touch his clothes I'm going to be whole I'm going to touch his clothes and I shall be whole and she kept on saying it again and again again and when she came up and touched Jesus the anointing flowed right from him into her and Jesus stopped he said who touched me and Peter said Lord everyone is touching you look at the crowd he said no there's another kind of touched somebody touched me in faith who touched me and the woman was scared you know why she was scared because she had broken the law of Moses the law of Moses said, if you, have a, if you are bleeding, you should, should not touch anyone. But, she, but you know what? She got healed and Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. That's the power of the spoken word. Amen? Now some people will say, oh, she touched the hem of his garment. Because on the gospel, say the hem of his garment. Here it says just his garment. And they'll make a thing. Oh, the high priest, you know, he had those bells and those tingle tangles and bananas and pomegranates. And, and those, those things signified the Messiah. Listen, Jesus was not the high priest. He was not one of the Pharisees, one of the priests. He was not. And he didn't belong to the religious system. Plus, he didn't go around dressed like a Christmas tree. 
So it doesn't matter where, where you touch Jesus, whether you touch the hem of his garment or you touch him at the knee or touch his sleeve. The point is, here's the thing. Wherever you touch Jesus, at whatever level you touch Jesus, he will meet you right there. Amen. But the important thing is that you touch him somewhere. And I would say this, you know, I would say this, you can receive a total miracle with nothing but nobody else but you and God involved. You can receive a miracle through the laying on of hands of somebody else. You can receive miracle when the elders come and anoint you with oil and pray the prayer of faith. You can receive a miracle when there's two or three gathered together with you, agree with you. And you can also be healed. You can believe God. I will go to the doctor and God will anoint the hands hands of the surgeon and I will have a successful surgery although it's riskful but whatever it is wherever at whatever level you touch Jesus he will meet you there are you with me that's how she received her miracle now I want to finish I want to close by telling a story from my own life when it comes to speaking the word many years ago I'm talking about 1980 I got baptized with the Holy Spirit early in 1980, and I was so eager. I, after, you know, after I got baptized with the Holy Spirit, one of the things that happens when you get baptized with the Holy Spirit is that God really opens the Bible to you. You begin to see things in the Bible you never saw before. I'm speaking in tongues and all that is great, but... You really, I mean, you open the Bible, you read the Bible, and God begins to speak to you. And one of the things I saw was Mark 16, and where he says, And these signs shall follow them that believe. And that gave me revelation. Wow, these signs shall follow me. So I shall lay my hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So I began to look for sick people to pray for. So I was going around praying for the sick and all that. And I was crazy. I mean, if there was a sick person in my vicinity, my hands would be on their heads, you know, casting something out or casting something in. You know, I was always, and Evelina knows what I was like. I was wild. So I was on this train and I, I prayed for this uh, woman who was actually dying. She couldn't even stand up, incurably sick. And she got healed in the train and She was so excited, she jumped up and began to run from carriage to carriage. You know, they have those those, uh, passages between the carriages and started telling everybody what God has done for us. Swedish people don't act that way. They're usually very reserved. But this lady was running, and then she ran into the next compartment. It was full of a group of Lutheran priests. And when they heard her testimony, they kind of dug their faces in the newspapers they were reading. Anyway... Uh, a week later, I get a phone call from a retired uh, lady missionary who had served in Ethiopia for many years. And she says, uh, Christopher, were you on a train praying for sick people? And this woman got healed. I said, yes, ma'am, it was me. She says, I knew it had to be you. Only you would do something so crazy. I s- <laughs> and she said, can you go to my home church in Engelholm? It's a town in the south of Sweden. Seven hours by train from where I live. She said, can you go there and minister in my home church? I said, sure, if they would invite me. So I had never been invited to preach in a church before. So I, uh, you know, I was so excited. The pastor called me, invited me, and he decided to have me for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I bought new socks and new shoes and new shirt and tie. I was so excited, you know. So I went there. To preach and it was a little church 40 people 
It was a little like a little chapel, but there are 40 members, and the chapel maybe seated 50, 60 people. And I preached Friday night, and I, I thought I'd give them with everything with both barrels. So the first night, everybody got baptized with the Holy Spirit, including the pastor. He couldn't stop speaking in tongues until 8 o'clock the next morning. And uh, anyway, so uh, Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, I mean, people were getting healed. People were coming from other places. Now on Sunday night, while I'm preaching, I notice a lady, a very well-dressed lady, sitting in the last row in the seat right by the right at the aisle. And she was carrying a little boy. He was about nine or ten years old. She was holding him. So I knew there was something wrong with the boy because normally a boy that size would be on his own chair, but he, she was holding him. Anyway, so when I gave the invitation, she came to the front carrying the boy, and she stood right in front of me uh, for prayer. So I knew there was something wrong with the boy because she's holding him, and I said, I said, ma'am, please sit down. So she sat down. I said, it's better for you to sit down carrying the boy. So I said, what's wrong with the boy? And she said, he cannot walk. Now, what I didn't know, what I found out afterwards was that this boy, he was the third known case in the whole world with this incurable disease. They didn't have a name for the disease. They didn't know what it was. They just knew that there were two other cases in the world. And uh, there was no treatment for it since they didn't even have a name for it. And uh, the boy, I mean, what the disease did, it was draining the calcium from his bones. So his bones were brittle like matchsticks and his muscles were atrophying and he was dying. Now the family was wealthy. They had taken him to South Africa and France and other places, taking him to top specialists who had taken bone marrow samples, you know, trying to figure out what was wrong with him and have some kind of treatment for him before he died. So, but there was nothing, you know, so she was desperate and someone had told her about the meetings and so they had brought the boy to the meeting and so now she's telling me he can't walk and I really, uh, until that time, I had never prayed for somebody who hadn't, who could not walk, you know, who was paralyzed, who was lame and... uh, uh, and neither had I ever seen anybody else attempt to pray for someone who couldn't walk. I just read about it in the Bible. And I didn't really know what to do. And as far as just knowing that he couldn't walk, that was big enough for me. The, thank the Lord I didn't know about all those other things. You know, I found out one thing. When you're going to pray for the sick, it's good not to know too much. Because if you know too much, your mind gets in the way. It affects your faith. Well, at least it does to me. I don't know about you, but it affects me. So anyway, so what happened was that he, uh, I said, okay, uh, okay, I'll pray for him. But I didn't know how to pray, what to do. And then I suddenly remembered I had read a booklet by Brother Hagen, in which he talks about the eight, seven or eight different ways that God uses to heal the sick. One is the prayer of faith. Second is the laying on of hand. Thirdly is, uh, 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 is uh, laying on hands, is anointing with oil. Then there was the prayer cloth. Then there's the prayer of agreement. Then there's casting out demons. And there's is the 
uh, um, uh, uh, casting on demons and this um, holy communion. You know, so I, I decided that I'm going to do all of these methods and one of them is going to work. So I said, okay, so I'm going to start. So I said, okay, so I had my list in my mind and I'm going to go through that list. So I'm going to pray the prayer of faith. So I stood over this boy and I prayed the prayer of faith and I prayed. I quoted the scripture. Lord, you said in your word, you bore this boy's diseases, carried his pains and by his stripes he is healed. And you said, whatsoever I shall ask in the name of Jesus, it shall be done. So I ask you to heal this boy and I thank you. I receive it by faith. I thank you that it is done. Amen. So I had done the first thing. Secondly, laying on of hands. Okay, I lay my hands on that boy and I gave him a Pentecostal massage. You know, I, I gave him a thorough rub down and, and you know, you gotta do it right when you got somebody in that condition. So I gave it and then I thought, okay, now I'm going to anoint him with oil. And back, you know, this was the early 80s. All the young preachers used to carry a little oil bottle. I don't see many of those anymore. Oil bottle in our pockets wherever we went. A little bottle. So I used to do the same. So when I was in a situation, somebody needed prayer, out came my oil bottle. I would take a little bit on my fingertip and give a little dab on their forehead, sometimes make a cross. So I did that. I made a little cross on the boy's forehead. And I thought, that is pathetic. This won't get the job done. Big miracle. So I, I poured the whole bottle over the boy's head. But it was a little bottle and a little trickle of oil came down and I thought, I said, that's pathetic. You know, a big miracle like that. So I used to carry a one liter refill bottle and I used to keep it behind the, uh, I used to keep it. Uh, there were always two things I used to carry. Back in those days, we were wild and Evelina will remember that. My, there were two, there were three things. I used to walk around with a briefcase. You remember my briefcase? And there were always three things in my, my briefcase. I had my King James Bible and I had my tambourine, my Holy Ghost tambourine and I had my oil bottle. Remember that Evelina? My tambourine, my, my oil bottle and my Bible. So, but I used to carry my refill bottle in my suitcase. So I took the refill bottle and that one liter bottle, I unscrewed the cap and I poured the whole thing, emptied the whole thing on the boy's head. And he was covered with olive oil and all over him and his, his mother, a thousand dollar dress, olive oil inside her shoes and just olive oil, you know. And then I thought, okay, now I'm going to do the prayer cloth. So I took my handkerchief. I held that handkerchief in my hand. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed the prayer of faith. You know, I prayed with all my heart. Then I put the handkerchief on the boy's head. So you can see them sitting there, hair all ruffled up, covered with oil, handkerchief on his head. And the whole crowd is watching me, you know, wondering. They've never seen anything like it. And then I said, okay, now I've got to cast out demons. So I began to cast the devil out of this boy. I was shouting, screaming, jumping up and down, commanding the devil to come out, you know. And then I thought, the way I'm going about this, if there is a devil, it's going to be out of him. But if there is no devil, well, then there's no harm done, you know. So I did the whole casting out of demons thing. Then I needed someone to pray the prayer of agreement with me. And Pastor Eric was sitting in the corner. I said, Pastor Eric, could you please join me? And I want to, you know, pray. And Pastor Eric was like this. And he was hiding, you know. And he just, he just waved me off. And he didn't look too happy. 
And then I said, okay, well, I can't find anyone to pray the prayer agreement with me. I said, Pastor Eric, uh, do you have Holy Communion? Can you give communion? And Pastor Eric, once more. And I said, Lord, you know my heart. I've done everything except two because I can't get the pastor to cooperate with them. So you'll have to work with what I have done. So, so I said, okay, Lord, you, you know, I mean, you know my heart. I would have done those other two things if the pastor had been cooperative, but he's not. You'll have to work with the other things. And so I stood in front of the mother and the mother said, now what? I said, well, your boy is healed. She said, my boy is healed. I said, yeah, he's healed. And so she took the boy and stood him up and he just crumpled straight on the floor. And it's amazing how, how the human mind, mind works. When you're in a crisis situation, your mind can work very fast. And, and then I suddenly said, I said, she looked at me. I said, don't worry. I said, the prophet told Naaman here to dip seven times in the river, Jordan. You have done only once. Do this seven times. And she did it seven times. And seven times the boy fell down. And then, and then she picked the boy up again. She said, what do I do now? I said, well, there's only one thing left to do. Because I have done everything I know that the Bible tells us to do. And we know that the word of God is true. There's just one thing left to do. I want you to do this. Every time you look at your boy, every time you look at him, before a thought enters your mind, I want you to say these words loudly. Say, thank you, Jesus, that when you died upon the cross, you bore my son's infirmity, and by your stripes he has been healed. The man of God has prayed for my son, and I declare that my son is healed. She looked at me, she said, my husband will think I'm crazy. I said, do you want your boy to live? She said, I want him to live. I said, then you better do what I tell you to do. Well, the service ended and Pastor Eric disappeared. Didn't take an offering for our ministry. And uh, so I, you know, so I was staying in a brother. In Sweden, we normally, when you preach, you're staying, you always stay in someone's house. So I was staying in the home of a businessman. He had a big house. So he took me home and we drove in silence. And anyway, the next morning, he drove me to the railway station and I was on the train back home. And during the seven hours, I fought this biggest mental battle of my life. I mean, believe me, it was like, you know, you know what I was up against? It was like the devil was telling me, that boy, you are a fool. What you did was crazy. That boy is going to die and it's going to be your fault. And everyone in the country would know about it. And forget about it. You will not have a ministry. But everybody's in the... Sweden is a small country. Everybody knows what everybody else does. Everybody's going to hear about it. Your ministry is finished. And I said, devil, all I know is this. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. But you know what I was up against? It's interesting. You know when you go to school, you get a Western education. I mean, an American or European education. It teaches you to think and to analyze and rationalize things. I had never thought of it, but everything about the way I had been taught to think was suddenly at odds with the Word of God. Because it's easy to believe things in the Bible when it's sound, when you can rationalize it. But in a situation like that, when 
not only is it irrational, but it's also at conflict with what is happening. Someone could die. You know, your, your mind screams at you that you can't believe this. And I found there was this big battle in my mind. It wasn't the devil. It was me and versus me. The way I had been taught through my education, the way I had been taught to reason and to think. And, but I just kept on answering with the word of God. I said, and I had just one scripture. I said, devil, let God be true and let every man be a liar. That was the one thing. So anyway, seven hours of that mental torment, I came home and my wife, those who know her, she's the kind of person, you know, she's Swedish and everything has to be done right, you know. And the first thing she said, call Pastor Eric. I said, honey, I'm hungry. No, you can eat later. I want you to call Pastor Eric. He has been calling half a dozen times. I said, okay, okay, I have to call Pastor Eric. So those days we didn't have cell phones. I called Pastor Eric and I, my heart was beating. I was thought he was going to tell me that the boy has died. You know, my worst fears have been confirmed. And, uh, and Pastor Eric said, hey, uh, Christopher, I want you to call this lady. She has been calling, trying to get a hold of you. I said, okay. So she gave me the number and it was the mother of this child. So I called this lady and I said, what's happening? And then she told me, she says, brother, I came home and I did what you told me to do. Every time I looked at my son, I opened my mouth and I said, thank you, Jesus, that you have borne my son's diseases, carried his pains by your stripes, he's healed. Man of God has prayed for him. I believe you have heard my son is healed. And she said that this morning when I was preparing breakfast, I put him on a mat on the kitchen floor. When all of a sudden I hear a sound, I look, he gets up and he walks two steps and he falls down again. She said, what's happening? I said, well, God is at work. Don't interfere. Don't talk. Don't ask questions. Don't put any words in your mouth except what I told you to do. Thank you, Jesus. Just give him thanks. And I said, this is my number. Call me anytime. She called me the next day. She said he got up four steps and walked four steps. Then he fell down again. What should I do? I said, don't do anything except what I told you. Just keep on thanking God. Just say, thank you, Jesus. You bore my son's infirmities by your stripes. He's healed. Third day, he had gotten up and walked across the living room. Fourth morning, she calls me and she was hysterical. She said, this morning, he woke up early in the morning, got out of bed, and he has been running around all morning, and you can't tell that there was anything wrong with him. And that boy was completely healed. Well, a few years ago, when we were in Sweden, uh, I thought of this lady. You know, I just thought of her, and I found her number, and I called her. I said, this is Christopher Alam, how are you doing? She said, oh, I'm fine, and you know, I'm old, I'm retired now, and she has passed away since then. But uh, we were talking, she was happy, I had called, we hadn't spoken for years. And I said, how's Matthias doing, Matthias, her son? She said, oh, he's doing very well, he lives in Norway, he has his own business, he has a family, he has two or three kids... And, you know, he's doing well. And he has a, plus he has a testimony. He has a story. He tells everybody of what God has done for him. And, you know, that young man, well, he's about 50 now. He lives in Norway. And he has his own business. He has a family. 
and his hobby is running marathons. <laughs> and, you know, I th- I've thought of him. I've not met him. We talk on Facebook and uh, talk on the phone, talked on the phone a couple of times. You know, and it suddenly dawned on me. That boy, Matthias, instead of being 50 years old and having a family, he should have died. If you had let nature take its course, he would have died 42 years ago. And not only would he have, he have died, but his name. I mean, his life would have been like a book with empty pages with no story on them. But now, he has a full book. There's a life story in that book. Fascinating life story. He would have been, he would have ended up with his name in some medical research journal as the third known case with this incurable disease who died at the age of 10 or 9 or whatever it was. Forgotten by everybody except his mother. But instead he has a life. He's alive. He has a family. He has a story. Why? Firstly, because of a savior who was whipped and bruised and beaten and crucified, carrying upon his own self this boy's diseases and carrying all his sins, all his infirmities, bearing all those things upon his own self. As a substitute so that this boy doesn't have to bear those things. Because of his savior. If it wasn't for the savior. Nothing would have helped this boy. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because of the faith of a mother. Who chose to believe the word of God. Taught by an inexperienced evangelist who had more zeal than he had what you would call wisdom. But even that whole thing about wisdom is debatable because nowadays most Bible colleges you go to, they teach you wisdom, but they take away your fire and your zeal and you're left with nothing. You're left with a full head but with an empty heart. But thank God for this mother who believed the words of a young, inexperienced preacher who knew nothing except believe with simple faith the word of God. Because of which that young boy is alive and he has a life today. Amen. My point is this. Listen. We all have to take a stand somewhere. We can take a stand in faith. Which can be very difficult. Goes against your mind. Speaking the word. Confessing the word. In the face of adversity. In the face of impossibilities. In the face of death. In the face of disease. When everything says this is impossible. You can take a stand there. 
or you can take a stand in the other place and say, well, you know, it was not the will of God. Que sera, sera, what will be, will be. Sometimes we don't know mysterious other ways of the Lord. You can take a stand there, or you can take a stand here. But whatever it is, you have to take a stand. You can't walk away from these things. We can't walk away from human sufferings. But when we take a stand in faith, believe me, God always honors faith. Faith is the only currency acceptable in heaven. God honors faith. God always works through men's faith. So you have to take a stand. And when you take, when you take a stand, the life that is saved, restored, could be someone precious to you. Could be someone dear to you. Amen? Hallelujah. May the Lord help us be men and women of faith. Because Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns to the earth, shall he find faith on this earth? He was talking about the unjust woman, I mean the unjust judge and the woman who refused to give up until she received what was due to her. And she just, she just was relentless. And, and Jesus talked about her, says, when I return to this earth, you know, we always talk about when Jesus comes, he's looking for a bride that is spotless and holy. And that is great. Yes, he is. But the other thing he's looking for is when the son of man returns, shall he find faith on this earth? Hallelujah. I'm not there as yet. I don't know where you are. I'm not there as yet. I'm still under construction. But when Jesus returns, when he looks at me, I want him to find faith in me. In you. Hallelujah. Never give up. Believe God. Believe God. Believe God. Believe God. And how do you believe God? Speak the word. Speak the word. Speak the word in the face of adversity, in the face, in the face of in, impossibilities or what the world call, calls impossibilities. There are impossibilities with man, but there's no impossibilities with God because the Bible does say the things that are impossible with man, they are possible with God. So you've got to realize there's no impossibilities with God. So we stand and on the word of God and Believe the word of God and speak the word of God. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Let's stand up together. Let's lift up our hands to God. And make a commitment of our hearts. You know, when we hear the word of God, don't ever think that, you know, you come to a meeting, you hear the word of God and suddenly everything will change. No, it's step by step. First the grain, then the stock, then the leaves, and then the full corn in the air. There's a progression in the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom of God works. It's so, But every time we make a consecration of our lives and say, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to believe your word. I want to walk in faith in your word. Help me, Lord. Help me. And, you know, we, we, we take, we rise a few inches Or maybe just an inch or half an inch. But it's better than being in the place where we are. And we grow. And we go from glory to glory. And may the Lord continue his work in our lives.
until one day we stand before Jesus. And the Bible says when we stand before him, we shall be exactly like him. We shall be like he is. Hallelujah. So let's lift up our hands and concentrate.